and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Hannah and Wayne. How's it going, guys? How are you? Welcome back. <laughs> welcome back. I think I wasn't here last week, or two weeks ago, but I, I think given the order that these shows come out in, not the order we recorded them in, I think I was missing last week. Was that true? You were missing the last time we recorded. I have no idea where that is in the order these are being published. Okay. I, I feel like anytime we talk about our recording order, we sound like a very convoluted sci-fi novel that no one wants to read. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> we, you know, way, way to shut down the conversation, Hannah. Oh, yeah. I don't want to go into too much random stuff because I think we have a really good topic this week that I'm looking forward to because every once in a while something happens in the world of pop culture where before we write a blog or before anything happens, I start getting text messages from people and tweets and, and shit and people going, you're going to talk about this, right? That happened this week. <laughs> Did that happen for you guys? Yeah. <laughs> no one knows I'm on this show. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> but, and with me, get, given what prompted this whole thing, I, I got comments because of my, my work on that comics project I work on as well. Right, right. So not just the show, but yeah, I have this other... So I, I'm trying to say that without spoiling the topic. So oh, it's 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 spoil the topic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I guess yeah. as you listen to this three weeks ago, a school board in Tennessee decided to, and I'm going to use scare quotes around the word ban, but they decided to ban the book Mouse or remove it from the curriculum or, and this is very questionable as far as what they actually did. And some people are like, well, it's not really a book ban. I would argue, and I think our guest will argue when we just heard a moment that very infrequently are any books actually banned in the, you know, Gestapo since so i think it was banned but we'll talk about that but they removed the book mouse from their curriculum this starts up a shitstorm. people argue about it because it's a comic book people were asking us about it but oddly enough we've been talking about doing an episode on censorship and banned books already so it was especially appropriate because it was so pop culture -y. you know it's the only comic that's ever won the pulitzer but i made the comment in the blog i don't think it's unique in this respect because i wanted to do this last november when glenn youngkin was running for governor of virginia with the backing of the woman who fought to get beloved banned and we want to talk about banned books especially since house was in the news a lot so yeah so let's talk about banned books. Okay. So this is um returning to the show, doctor or professor? I don't know what she prefers. Doctor, professor, Kathleen Newman. Kathy, welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll take either one. Dr. Kathy was my professor when I was at Carnegie Mellon, the second time I was at Carnegie Mellon when I, for my master's degree. This is where I met Katya, who's not on the show today. But Kathy was a professor of mine. And when this happened, Kathy wrote a, I guess, a Twitter essay. I don't know what people call those. What do the kids call a collection of tweets that is academic and informative? Kathy wrote a Twitter essay about I'm, band. Oh, go ahead. I'm going to promote the idea of it's a flock of tweets. Oh, <laughs> if no one else has done that, I'm, I got that. I'm okay with it, but it makes me think of flock of seagulls, which is not a bad thing. <laughs> but, but Kathy wrote a, a Twitter essay, a flock of tweets that, that talked about the idea of banning books. And you talked with a little bit of expertise on it because you teach a, a, a again, Kathy is a professor at CMU, Carnegie Mellon University, and you teach a course on banned books, correct? That is correct. 
the, the books we look at, the books we read vary from year to year, sort of what I'm interested in. But any book that appears on the American Library Association website as having ever been challenged by anybody anywhere at any time could be on the list, which means almost all books. Really? Yeah, I had actually considered <laughs> almost all books. <laughs> well, all the books you'd want to teach. Okay, that's fair enough. That's fair all enough. Good books. <laughs> I mean. Did you did you know I I was researching for the show that like at one point in the United States apparently both the Canterbury Tales and like Daniel Defoe's Mall Fla- Flanders were actually like banned. Yes. Yeah. Canterbury Tales is like, filthy. <laughs> yeah, because they're dirty books. No, it's Mall Flanders. They're dirty books. I say that like way too excitedly. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's wild. We could do a whole show on that, but not today. But okay, so. Kathy, you wrote this. We will link the essay in the show notes, by the way. But you essentially wrote a history of how book banning has worked over, I don't know, over time, over the years, over forever. Yeah. How would you phrase it? When something like the mouse ban happens, everybody freaks out and says, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. And so... One thing people don't realize is that pretty much every day in America, somebody walks up to a librarian at a public school or a public library and says, I want this book removed, or I want this book redacted, or I want this book restricted. It just, it's an incredibly common occurrence. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of one thing that I wanted people to realize is that a lot of these cases don't bubble up and get news coverage, but librarians are on the front line of sort of having to contend with these requests every day. And I guess that makes sense because that's who would do it. So part of the question is going to be, why is Mouse different? Like, why is Mouse special? Because I I know this is not the first time someone has, you know, asked for Mouse to be banned. You know, I believe Spiegelman has spoken about it before. Spiegelman has a comic that was published in New Yorker back in 2012, where he discusses with Maurice Sendak, who did who did Where the Wild Things Are, the idea of whether or not Mouse was appropriate for children. It's a very meta comic. So it's, I mean, I understand the issue. I understand the issue of why people in Tennessee, this is weird because I'm sure our listeners are not expecting me to go on this side. I understand why they wanted it banned because in many ways, I get why Mouse is not a children's book. I would also argue, sort of like Kathy did at the very beginning, that children's books as children's books are not the interesting ones to teach, even to children. Uh, which is not to say that I don't think there. I, I I think there's a lot to be done with children's literature as as something to be studied. But I think the idea of limiting children, particularly in the sense of you know kids reading in classes, you know, in school. I think limiting children to children's lit is dumb. <laughs> I, mean, well, and, and, dumb. I mean, Mouse certainly wasn't written with a middle school audience in mind. It was it's written right. by adults for adults. It was serialized in Raw Magazine, which was not a magazine for children. This yes. was not highlights. So, so yeah, I mean, there's something practical in age appropriateness of the material. I'll give them that. Well, I, I mean, like children's lit as a concept, I, I would argue in the grand scheme of history is relatively new. 
And mm-hmm. also, anytime anyone argues about protecting the children, I, I want to like see whether or not they've handed their kid a uncensored Bible. Because if they've yeah. handed their kid an uncensored Bible, then they lose all ground. And, and before someone takes this out of context, I'm not saying people shouldn't be able to read the Bible. I'm saying <laughs> it's a dirty book with a lot of yeah. war, with a lot of sex, with a lot of like stuff that's quote not child appropriate Only that i didn't understand when Only i the good like, parts you know like, i didn't understand <laughs> yeah. when i read it the what? first time so like if you're gonna give your kid that you probably would argue Dude. well there's like a really good reason hannah for my kid to read the bible and yeah there is probably but there's also really good maybe not the one we agree upon but there's also a really good reason <laughs> for your kid to read mouse or you know beloved like just shielding children from the world is not a way to like make better humans it actually makes people worse and and that's that's i i won't give them that that's all i have to say about that like i have fought (laughs) for my right as a child to be able to read stuff and like Mm. just oh i agree with you i just i'm saying i think that they have what i'm giving them is that i understand why they did it i understand the decision they made right they're wrong yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah, i'm not saying i i agree with this choice oh yeah no i'm not saying you guys agree Right. But I'm saying that there there is a cognitive dissonance that we absolutely like and I'm not I'm not saying that you have not <laughs> noticed this. But like we should we should not let it be unsaid that there's a cognitive dissonance about like what is considered child inappropriate and what is not. One group of people that we're forgetting here are the teachers yes. yeah. this book for the students. And so the decision that is being contested here is the decision of the school board, but the school board was overturning a curriculum decision that a group of teachers made. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things that book banning often brings up is questions about whether or not we respect the professional status of teachers to make curriculum decisions. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. This was also like the question right in Virginia, as you alluded to, Mav, at the beginning of the show, with Mm -hmm. with Beloved, and it was hotly contested. And like, we had all those, you know, silly news articles that's like, you know, when is it appropriate to expose children to racism, which, you know, the (laughs) critique many people have made is the white is being left unsaid in that (laughs) statement, because children of color are always being exposed to racism. And we're focusing on schools right now though there's like other book bans but there's like this question about like you know parents and like how much say do they have or just like random school board members who might not even have kids who just decide to run for office and they're just some rando without expertise like sitting on a board okay so i'm going to read one of the comments we got and then i'm going to segue this into you know the points that kathy made in her in her flock of tweets to use Wayne's term. So one of the comments we had was from, and this is a, a listener who just typed Jim as his name. So I don't know his last name, but Jim, thank you for listening. And Jim said, I'd be interested in hearing your take on the similarities between the mindset that says the person who wrote this book is a deviant, but it's hiding it from the world in an attempt to pervert our children. And the mindset that says the person who's removing this book from the curriculum is a racist, but it's hiding it from the world in an attempt to pervert our children. Uh, The first group, which is the group that has the power to, uh, to affect change is obviously more of an issue on a practical level, but I think it would be useful to think through, especially for those of us who want more people to read good books. I agree with Jim. However, I, I think it the case is rare where someone is removing a book 
in order to be racist or in order to be puritanical. I think banning books in order to be evil, and I mean like intentionally, is probably not common. I think that in both the case of Beloved and even in Mouse, this is being removed because someone really sincerely feels like, oh my God, there's boobs in here and there's violence. How can schools be teaching this? And, you know, think of the children. I think that's sincere. And I, uh, Kathy, I mean, you talked about that in the, in the Twitter essay. Well, I think it might not matter what people say, because mm-hmm. I think what we have to pay attention to is what people do. And we have to pay attention to the kinds of books that get banned. So I'm using a term from Emily Knox, who's a professor of librarian studies. And what she argues is that it is primarily she uses the term diverse books that are banned and challenged. Uh, so books written by women, books written by people of color, books written by people who belong to LGBTQA plus community. So I don't think it matters why somebody is challenging a book. I think what matters is when we stack all those books together, one on top of each other, we see that they tend to be written by marginalized authors for marginalized readers. And mm-hmm. so that to me is sort of the thing that matters. I don't know that we're ever going to win an argument with book banners on the merit of their claim. I think we have to defend books because of the kinds of books that end up getting banned and challenged over and over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the point I think that becomes is the, the things that people view as deviant when they're banning books or harmful, I think are often, they're often, this makes me uncomfortable, often because I don't understand it, but because I don't like it, it makes me uncomfortable. When is too early to expose, Hannah, you said, white children to controversial subjects? I've said on the show before, I watched Roots when it premiered when I was two years old because my mother is like, oh, well, we're watching this together. And that's that was maybe a little young, but I was not unique. This is not, you know, I know a, part of the joke on our show is often that I'm weirdo like my my life was has been weird but it's not like i'm the only two-year-old little black kid who's aware that racism exists in the world like that is something that was just a part of my reality in 1976 so i think it's disingenuous to say that they're doing it to promote racism or to promote even anti-semitism that's not why Mouse is banned. Mouse was banned because these people really sincerely think that they're protecting children, often from their own ignorance. But that's what they believe. Or at least that's my thought. Oh, but, yeah. I, I think it, it has good intention for the most part. Right. But then the problem is the problem becomes they, they're protecting them because, hey, this is the thing that challenges my white middle-class Christian beliefs of America is a great place that never does anything wrong. And therefore this book is kind of bad because, you know, the, the Holocaust is icky. Why would I want my, my kids to read that? I think that's what ends up happening. Or, you know, gay people are icky. Black people are, you know, <laughs> no, black people aren't icky, but like, you don't want to read a book that makes you feel bad about white people. Like that's why Beloved was banned. I mean, I feel like at this current moment, we're mostly talking about banning books in terms of challenging it in curriculum and or maybe having it removed from some something like a public library. 
so that, you know, are restricted so that kids who are quote too young won't have access to it. But banned books aren't just limited to schools and curriculum, Mm -hmm. right? Like I did something last year and PIN America has a white paper where they, you know, spend 28 pages detailing like books across like prisons. And, you know, like they they found like some similar patterns uh, to what, you know, Kathy has described in that, like they're usually banned because of sexual content, violence, criminal activity, so, so like issues of race also like that this in particular i think might be because of prisons like depictions of escape are language perceived to encourage it I, I mean i know we do this till we free us by Miriam kaba like has been you know like banned in certain prisons to some degree hmm. that's a book about abolition um yeah yeah <laughs> you know, like, but, it's, but it's about escaping so i, I get it <laughs> like you know they have examples throughout this paper which i'll link in the show notes it's really an interesting and even sometimes whenever they don't formally ban or censor books the way the system is set up books sort of get de facto banned so for example sometimes like incarcerated people have to pay for every book they receive instead of like mm-hmm. free books. So I know that we tend to think about children when we talk about banned books because to some degree they rely on public libraries and schools to be exposed to things, but there's also more to the conversation as well. Okay, so then let's ask Kathy because you've taught the class. And I hinted at this at the very beginning in the blog that there are a lot of people who are arguing in favor of the Tennessee decision. They're not banning books. The book's still there. And I would argue that it is not very common that we have people literally, you know, no one's gathering up all the copies of Mouse and throwing them on a bonfire. I'm a, I understand that. I don't think that means the book's not banned. And for a joke, when I wrote the blog, I said, fine, can we say the book's been canceled? Because I think the book's totally being canceled. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, Kathy, what do people mean when they're saying banned books? And which moves towards Hannah's point of, I think it comes up a lot when we're talking about kids, but I don't think it's just kids because the prison example is good, but I also think just stuff that's commonly available in libraries or just for, you know, there was, we'll talk about comics in a little bit, but Wayne will say there's been a lot of comics that have been tried to Mm -hmm. ban over the years. Well, I'm going to answer this question in two ways. And first I'm going to say that it's actually librarians and activist librarians like Judith Krug, who started Banned Books Week. Uh, She started it in 1982 that uses the language of banned books because it gets people's attention. When you say Mm -hmm. a book has been banned, that sounds cool. That sounds scary. That sounds dangerous. Edgy. Edgy, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I think that the language of book banning has been adopted by book defenders as a way of getting people's attention. And every year, somebody somewhere writes a kind of cranky op-ed, like, why do we need banned books week? Because books aren't really banned. So so I think it's a, it's a very conscious choice of words. Mm-hmm. Um, and librarians are always trying to get kids interested in reading, right? So they set up displays where they put, like, police tape and, you know, chains around <laughs> books because it makes... Kids think, wow, what's in there? You know, maybe I want to go look at that because there's something dangerous in there. So I, I think that's one thing. But what the people who really do the deep scholarship in this area argue is that when you take a book out of a curriculum or when you take a book out of a school library, 
you are restricting an adolescent's access to that book. And that restriction is significant. And you're also telling kids what you think they can handle. You're also telling kids, we don't care what you're interested in, because as certainly the listeners of this show know, kids are interested in comic books and kids are interested in graphic novels and comic books have a much higher rate of being banned and challenged than books that are simply print books. So Mm -hmm. I think just to go back to the mouse case, I think you're telling adolescents, we don't care that this is actually a better or a more interesting or an easier way for you to get this information, a way that you're more excited about. Uh, We're taking it off of the curriculum and we're not actually qualified to figure out what should replace it. Like you might've seen on the school, (laughs) we should have a Holocaust you know, survivors talk to the kids. But the Mm -hmm. book does a certain kind of work and gets kids interested in reading. And I I am currently parenting three teenagers right now. And let me tell you, anything that (laughs) gets them interested in reading is the thing that you let them read. I think that's fair enough. It's weird because I I, I appreciate what you're saying when you're saying the putting the tape around and, you know, trying to make it seem edgy. Because I think that's what people picture when they say banned book. You know, when you see these op-eds every year, and we did, we saw them this time, of, well, but no one really tried to ban the book. You know, it's like, eh, didn't they, though? Because if I'm 13, I don't have a car, I don't have disposable income. You know, like, I, I mean, sure, maybe I buy books on my own or my parents buy me books. or anything, But like the vast majority of my reading does come from school. So I think you've got a real point there. But... <sighs> When we're taking away that access, I feel like it, I feel like kids aren't stupid. So not only are we banning things that they like, but they know that, you know, a bunch of stupid adults are making a decision because they're out of touch. I'm thinking about things like bans on video games or rock music or comics that have happened over the last, you know, hundred years that we were where we do this sort of thing and probably arguably even longer, but like hundred years of youth culture and then longer of, you know, just culture in general. And that question of what do you replace this with? I mean, that in Holocaust education, that's been part of the conversation I've been part of because of the Hutzpah project, but you know, what mm-hmm. do you replace it with? And mm-hmm. you know, like one of the books that, that is used most often, you know, the boy in the striped pajamas and, yeah. and it's, you know, that's a nice little book, but it's problematic. Like it, you know, mouse is you know, a narrative of someone who lived through this as opposed to a fictionalized account. You know, the boy mm-hmm. in the striped pajamas kind of removes that first person narrative. And I guess in the case of mouse, it's second person that, you know, it's coming from art it's, instead yeah. of directly from Vladik. But nevertheless, it, it's, you know, it removes it from the experience of the affected people. Well, so friend of the show, Don Griffin, she commented and she specifically brought that up. She wrote, I especially like the viral synopsis on why Mouse was banned slash removed from curriculum called pajamification, referring mm-hmm. to the boy yes. in striped pajamas, a nicer, friendlier, whitewashed way to look at the Holocaust, which is especially what would replace a book like Mouse. And then she linked to a Twitter thread by Gwen Katz, who wrote very much about this. Mm-hmm. You know, the reason to Kathy's original point, one of the reasons that. I think boy in the striped pajamas is acceptable is because it's about the good Germans. I mean, that's really, that's really what it is. It's not only fictionalized, but it's about, you know, it's the uplifting story of a boy who knows that, well, you know, I'm, I think Jews are just like us and which is any other community. And I mean, 
any other mm-hmm. community, whether you're whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about religion, you know, as a black person, I will let you know, I don't want you to be colorblind. I don't want you to think that I'm just like you. There are ways in which I am different than you. And the same can be said for Jewish people. The same can be said for Muslim people. The same can be said for LGBTQ people. And that narrative isn't comfortable, right? Because we have created a world, we being American society, has created a world where the comfortable thing to say is I am colorblind. I don't care about religion. Well, you know, the Jews in the Holocaust absolutely cared about religion and, and their descendants do now, you know, like mm-hmm. that's, so that's sort of kind of the point of mouse. Like if you actually read mouse, which by the way is brilliant, so brilliant that it won a Pulitzer. One of the big issues in mouse is that art, you know, the author who's interviewing his father, Art is not as understanding of that time. He wasn't alive yet. He is not Jewish in the same way that his father is. He is Jewish by birthright. The book is, in many ways to me, about learning about that culture before Mm -hmm. his father died, which is an important message. It's about passing on those narratives. Wayne, your job with the Hutzpah Project is literally about doing that. Very much so, yeah. Yeah, it, it's about telling those stories and keeping them alive. And you know, I'm the I'm not the only writer on the pro, on the project anymore. Right. But I, I've written, I think, thirteen stories in the four volumes. And yeah, my job has been very much about preserving these stories from actual survivors as much in in their own words as I possibly can. Now, my job as a writer is to construct a a narrative out of this. Out of I think a lot of them are long gone. It's from notes and and personal stories and that sort of thing. But you know, my job has been to construct a narrative that preserves that story and tells what their actual experience was. And, you know, from the beginning, Hutzpah has been aimed at middle school and up. I mean, it has had an educational mm-hmm. component to it from the beginning. There's the people at, at the Holocaust Center put together a teacher's guide for volume one. And it's this amazing 80, 100 page, like yeah, everything yeah. I wrote has been elaborated on with sources and hey, you like I mentioned the ghetto of Krasny and and oh here's like four pages on what that was. Yeah. <laughs> I mean far more than I knew about it going into it. And I'm kind of blown away at the amount of research that has gone into the stuff that I put out there based on my own research. And it, it's there as an educational resource. Mm-hmm. Which we will link to that in the show notes because that's on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) She's saying that that goes back to the professionalization question or the professional respect that I think teachers deserve. If they're Mm -hmm. choosing a book and putting it on the syllabus, you know, I think in in most cases, you know, I'm inclined to respect that. I think people don't understand how teaching works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that, that's de- very definitely part of it. I mean, you teachers, you, you go to school, you learn how to do this, you learn how to develop this sort of thing. And the decision is made by 10 people who have never read mouse. Yeah. Well, that, but <laughs> I mean, just as an example, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's uh, everyone on this show has taught a literature class at least once. Some of us more than that. When you're teaching, when you come up with a syllabus, Oh, God, we've done syllabus shows where, you know, you can watch the process. Now, our syllabus show is sort of when we do a syllabus show, we're reducing the process into an hour of trying to be entertaining on a podcast. Right. (laughs) So something that, you know, would would normally be something I'd think about for weeks going in. Yep. But when I'm choosing texts for a course, 
as a college teacher, as an elementary school teacher or a middle school, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, I, I did go to school for this. And I, there's and a I, reason for choosing these things. Right. And I have thought about it. And I, I think people make the assumption that teachers at any level don't understand, you know, their particular ramifications. Like, I, I understand why school systems have parent oversight. I understand why PTAs exist. I support them existing. I think it's a very good thing that you should be involved in your child's education. At home and in school. (laughs) Right. But every time I hear I hear someone explain that the school's doing the wrong thing because the school should be teaching. Most recently, it was DeSantis, who is the governor of Florida, complaining about just the don't say gay bill. And they basically made it illegal to talk about homosexuals. And then he actually said in an actual quote that schools shouldn't be talking about sexuality. They should be talking about science and civics, two things that are particularly dealt with in every book about you know transgender rights that i can think of right like this is like this is specifically what it's the reason why i might choose a book like i don't know middlesex to teach to teach because i want to talk about that concept or i mean just to get back to comics and another book that's been banned in some cases i had a student once complain in in a reading reflection that she didn't like that I had chosen Persepolis for them to be reading because they should be reading real literature. And, you know, and maybe if people, you know, maybe if this book were written as a real book and not as a comic, people would take it more seriously. And I'm like, well, you know, it won a bajillion awards. It's Persepolis. You know, it was nominated for an Oscar. Like that's <laughs> like people did take this story seriously. So I don't think people understand how books are chosen. I think people just think that I don't know, we throw darts at a wall or something. <laughs> and, and also, like, it's important to note, I think that most of the time, especially when you're teaching, like, a thematic class or a course about a period or a genre, that you've chosen books that pair well together. And if you take one book off the syllabus, then, like, I'm not going to say the whole thing falls apart, but, it can. you, you know, like... <laughs> Things are meant to build upon one another. Things are meant to be read against each other. Like, I mean, we've talked about this before in the negative sense, Mav. Like, you and I teach, shall we say, problematic works yes. of literature. And, I, I love teaching Tarzan. Yes. Yeah, and it's not just what you teach. It's how you teach and mm-hmm. why you teach it. Which, you know, they might not be happy with how we teach things either. But Well, but to Kathy's point. I don't, I mean, and Kathy, you know the list. I'm sure Tarzan has been banned by somebody, but I expect far less frequently than Beloved. Oh, to be fair, it's probably taught a lot less frequently (laughs) than Beloved. Right. But it's, but Tarzan is racist as all hell. I mean, that's why I picked it. Like, it, it is a, it is a very problematic book. But like, I think people look at it and they're like, no, this is a great book about, you know, a white dude fl- swinging through the forest, oh. you know, yelling, ah, have, which is not a thing that happens in Tarzan. You're going to love band at least once in LA in 1929 because Tarzan was living in sin with Jane. He was living. Oh my God. Without being married. <laughs> He doesn't though. That's the thing. Okay, so that means that whoever that means whoever banned the book Tarzan didn't read it. They watched the film. 
because Tarzan and Jane do not live together in Tarzan of the Apes. They like they're I mean, they are in the forest, but like in the first the the actual narrative of Tarzan, they it, it's more than halfway through the book when they meet and they don't end up together. Like they, they like each other, but they do not live in sin. He's the, in, in the first Tarzan book. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. It means they banned it without reading it is, which exa- is exactly the point. It also means that no one had a problem with the fact that Tarzan just straight up lynches black people constantly throughout the book, several times, hangs people left and right. It's like a thing he does. <laughs> and I teach it. The reason I picked that book is I teach it because I want to have a discussion with my intro to lit students about what's it mean to be making a folk hero out of this guy who is using the language of slavery and the clan because of when this book was written to murder people. And I mean, frequently, it's not like just once or twice. Tarzan discovers that he can hang people from trees and then he loves it. It's his preferred method of killing. Wow. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a crazy book. Like, and it's weird because nobody actually reads Tarzan. People watch the Disney movie and call it a day and they left that part out. So one thing that I think is worth mentioning that, well, so the number one reason that books are banned is for sexual content. And number two is Okay. So those are the top two reasons. There have been times when political content gets very explicitly flagged. So things that were perceived as having a relationship to communism in the 50s that got banned. What do you make of the hundreds of bills in state legislatures across the country that are trying to ban, say, the 1619 Project? Or the example yeah, just explicitly of, of Ron DeSantis trying to ban the word gay from public education. <sighs> I mean, that's why I'm always hesitant about it, um, about all of this. I This is going back, if we go back and listen to our show where we talked about, you know, can we cancel culture or can't we? You know, I, I, I was very specific about, I had problems with what happened with the Dr. Seuss book. My problems with banning it all happened on Mulberry Street is I knew people were going to take it the wrong way. I mean, it was being canceled. Now, his estate, which, by the way, is run by people who never met Dr. Seuss. I mean, he was like it's literally they've got no connection to him other than they own this material. They opted, you know, no one can force you to sell a book if you don't want to. And frankly, the entire thing's going to end up in the public domain in like four years. So it's going to be back on the shelves. But I understand why they made this decision. That said, I think it was disingenuous to say that they are not engaging in cancel culture. They are because someone found the material objectionable. Someone who is closer to me morally than DeSantis, because they found the material objectionable, they decided to limit access to it. So I'm not a fan of capitalism, but they use the forces of capitalism in order to do that. I don't think that's different in a meaningful way other than the fact that I agree with their morality and that's why I'm nebulously on the side of the people who are like oh but I want to be in this book and I was like no you don't like you haven't read this book I've I read the book that week so I knew what was in it but it's like you haven't you, you just no one's thought about and it all happened on Mulberry Street in, in like a hundred years it's like you know it's you're lying also like you're lying if you said you've been watching Pepe Le Pew cartoons or whatever else right so I understand that logic But it is almost always for sexual reasons, even Beloved. The reasoning for banning Beloved wasn't, oh, but there's slavery in this. And there's, you know, they mercilessly whip people in Beloved. 
you know, there's like a lot of, you know, horrible things that happen to the slaves or the, you know, former slaves in blood because it's, you know, it's, an, it's a post-slavery narrative, just barely. But her reasoning was, oh, my God, there's a sex scene in this. How can we sh- be showing this to 17 year olds? That was her rationalization in that case. But I was trying to move the conversation. These uh, bills. The- Here's the reason given for banning the 1619 Project in Arkansas and Mississippi, because it's, quote, racially divisive and revisionist. And the Iowa mm-hmm. bill claims that it, quote, attempts to deny or obfuscate the fundamental principles upon which the United States was founded. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, as someone from Mississippi who had an education in the public school system of Mississippi, which I think was better than a lot of people who've had public education in Mississippi because of my teachers and also because of like being in some AP history classes, like I I have read like it's not just the 1619 project, but it's part of this to me because they're looking at fundamentally rewriting learning objectives and moving away from I, I think one example was like learning about indigenous like history in the United States, which plays into, you know, reasons why they wouldn't want to teach the 1619 project because I mean, in in simplistic terms, this country was founded on genocide and (laughs) slavery. And this is, they don't, that like a lot of these bills talk about like, yeah, these fundamental principles upon the United States, but also don't want the United States, like teaching people about the United States in a negative light. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there are other bills that are related that are anti-American ideologies, including Marxism and socialism. Like, <laughs> um, so like it's a mix of different things in there, but it's all related for sure. Yeah. Well, but so Kathy, your point though, what makes trying to ban the 1619 project interesting is because they're not hiding behind sexuality as inappropriate content it's literally saying no we don't want this because it's racially divisive even though the entire point it it makes america look bad it's anti-american it it makes us question just how awesome our founders were i wonder how far we are from people trying to ban hamilton in in public schools like it's weird i'm thinking about the beginning of the trump term there's this point where Pence and his wife go and see Hamilton because, of course, they did. Because, you know, who the fuck wouldn't want to be go see Hamilton? And if I could get tickets to see, you know, Hamilton on Broadway by leveraging my position as the vice president, of course I will. Right. So they do that. And then at the end, during the curtain call, the cast takes the stage to basically you know, give him a speech of be better, you know? And there was this big question. But but there's a difference. Yeah. But but there's a difference. Well, 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 hold on. on. Because there was this big question when that happened where people were like, oh, but like, why are they doing something political here? They shouldn't be doing this. And I'm like, because it's fucking Hamilton. What do you mean? Why are they doing something political? That's what this play is, (laughs) you know? So go ahead. Yeah, but this play, but Hamilton is political in a different way than the 1619 project. Is it? Yes. Because like, like, so like the six, I mean, yes and no. So like the 1619 project is really like unveiling the very ugly history of America. And Mm -hmm. I, I would I would say like in a lot of ways doesn't necessarily find ways to soften the blow 
to anyone who's very pro-American, Hamilton is very pro-America. Like it, it certainly casts a racially diverse cast and makes the point that immigrants, you know, to quote the actual play, get the job done and makes a point about like who was here in America and includes women's stories, although perhaps not the extent mm-hmm. that people might want. But but the main characters, the main historical figures that fl- play focus on still are the founding fathers, okay. including the founding father, who is very invested in the bank. And in fact, the, I mean, we talked about this on our like founding fathers show That's a while ago. They, they like, you know, they actually, to make a point that slavery is real bad, they actually like softened like historical truths about which founding fathers were yes. involved in slavery. So like at the end of the day, it's still doing political work. And I'm not trying to say like it's bad but it's more complicated than like say like you know it's not it's still celebrating the founding fathers it's still celebrating what we like like america to be about i use we in a general sense we all know that i'm weirdly anti-patriotic we you know it, it in some ways it it reinforces a lot of things that people find bad about nationalism and in fact like doesn't tell the stories of actual like black and indigenous people who were here and also like it's focus on immigration once again tells the story of like you know a nation of immigrants as opposed to like a nation of like settlers who came and committed genocide and you know so like i think the reason why you can like hamilton no matter where you're situated politically in some ways and not feel uncomfortable is because it's a musical that to some degree doesn't ask us to be uncomfortable most of the time okay then how do we reconcile i mean the arkansas and mississippi bills that kathy read right if you're banning the 1619 project because it's a racially divisive and revisionist account which it's not it's just i mean the 1619 project is literally just history yeah but if you're if your history and i want to make it clear i'm not arguing for this history but if your history lessons theoretically begin in 1776 or right before and you're taught about the glory of the american revolution and and freedom being about you know like land white landowners many of whom like enslaved people like that's a very different history sure yeah but to my to my earlier point though the reason i became a fucking teacher was to fix that well, I mean, like, like I, I mean, like, seriously, I mean, so imagine, uh, imagine you're at a public university and you're actually politically forbidden from teaching that book because of a vote by state legislature. Right. And that's a scary, weird thing. I, I work for three schools and I, I work for three schools that have been pretty good about giving me leeway to just sort of teach however I want so far. So, you know, yeah. yeah. So I'm not complaining about any of my current jobs and i mean lord knows i'm not above that so so like but i i've been given the ability to choose books and to choose curriculum based on my employers having respect for the expertise that i've spent you know decades acquiring and i know what i'm doing when i hear people arguing well we need to ban the 1619 project we need to ban talk of critical race theory people there's no way like, I, I refuse to believe that Donald Trump knows what 
critical race theory or the 1619 project is. Frankly, I don't think Ron DeSantis, who's an educated man, okay, Ron DeSantis is not stupid. He knows what he's doing, but I defy him to explain CRT to me. Like, so like, you know, good luck. And I, you know, so people are making these decisions not understanding what they're asking for. What they're ultimately asking for is, I want you to teach my kid to be as dumb as me. There was a video, I think John Oliver played it, where there was the the guy who stood up at the PTA meeting and was like, I don't want my kid to learn that America is racist. I want my kid to learn that America is exceptional. And I'm like, oh, my God, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> you know, like 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 that. he's basically arguing that I'm paying the schools by paying taxes. He's like, I'm a taxpayer and I want the schools to teach American exceptionalism. And I'm like, that's a bad thing. It, it just is. But it's what people want i guess and also to respond a little bit to kathy's point like i i know of professors who teach at public schools in mississippi who have been targeted sometimes by elected political officials because Mm -hmm. of their politics or and or like how they've done their job there's a the commercials running here in pennsylvania right now for our governor and and senate races races. and 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 the republican and there's one like it starts out like it's a picture of you know six-year-old white kid you little johnny's a racist and like (laughs) it starts out that way and then they start showing and like that's what the woke mob want you to believe yeah your children are racist (laughs) oh god and, and that's the entire thing it's just like and there's no content to it other than this scare tactic of liberals are telling you your children are racist. And and the fact that he made this commercial leads me to believe that, hmm, you might be a racist. Well, I tweeted about that today. We actually had one person in our Senate race for the Republican nomination. It were his pack created an attack ad. The actual context of the ad by Dave McCormick, who has an ad complaining that Dr. Oz, who somehow is running for senate in pennsylvania which is another problem it's a state but, he doesn't live in yeah yes but he's and mccormick doesn't either which is why it's crazy but an ad by mccormick complaining that dr oz believes that black lives matter that's the context of the ad and i am so waiting for the dr oz you know comeback ad that says i do not believe black lives matter <laughs> mccormick believes black lives. that's what they're arguing about which one of them yeah. believes this and i'm just like Oh my God, this is insane. <laughs> yeah. And, and which one of them, they're attacking each other over whether they believe in COVID or not. So it's literally attack ads over craziness. But it's the okay. language that, that their demographic responds to. Yeah. I, I feel like when you're talking about people arguing about the 1619 Project or now critical race theory, and critical race theory is a weird subject where no i wasn't going to get into it but i am going to get into it because i think it's weird i've i I see people arguing about crt the same way they argue about censorship or anything it's like well crt is not being taught in public schools and i'm like well it mostly isn't crt and they're like well crt is only taught in law schools that's not true because i i've read crt books and i've used some of the theories and i'm fairly certain both hannah and, and kathy have like it's it is a framework that gets used in cultural theory classes as well it's originally a legal framework it's been extended it's like saying you don't teach marxism and it's like i kind of do like that's kind of part of my jam right that's like a thing that i do so you are correct if you say that it's being taught to your kids in college 
that's why you sent them to college. You might not like that, but that is that is what we do here, you know. And so I understand the fear of it, but also the fear of it is based in this craziness where people are like, oh, they're teaching your kids that you are racist in second grade. And I'm like, no, that's not what anybody is doing. I'm not fighting for the right to do that. But if I were, then have the real conversation because I think there's a real conversation to be had. And you can't have that with a, I've not read this book, but I know that it's bad. So I want to ban it, which is literally what happened with Mouse. And they've admitted it. Not one mm-hmm. of those 10 people who voted against it had read the fucking book. So they don't know what's in it. So let me throw out a controversial hypothesis. You know, I've been looking at this since, you know, more closely in the last couple of weeks since people so mm-hmm. kindly read and retweeted my thread. What if banning mm-hmm. books is just another way to fight integration in schools? In the same way, I think it is. In, in a lot the of ways. same way that critical mm-hmm. race theory is a way to whip up voters about something that really has nothing to do with contemporary mm-hmm. politics. I mean, I think we've talked a lot about contemporary book banning, broadly speaking, but there's a long history of it, including the South banning Uncle Tom's Cabin because, mm-hmm. well, it will give people ideas and they'll want they'll want freedom. <laughs> you know, that'd be bad. I mean, I mean, I've read early American books that like even tackle the idea within the book of like what happens if you give enslaved people literature, isn't that dangerous if people can like, you know, read and think, which is, you know, slightly different than like Uncle Tom issue. But it's it, it, I mean, I mean, it's, it, it's related, but like, it, well, you know, Uncle Tom's yeah, well, pattern was yeah. banned across. Oh, yeah. I was just thinking part of the I mean, <laughs> and it's funny because. You know, how many people have read Uncle Tom's Cabin? I wonder how many of our listeners have actually let, you know, respond to us in the comments on the show. I'm curious as to whether people have actually read Uncle Tom's Cabin or not. People argue about it. I'm the only person on this podcast who's read it. I've taught it. I've taught it. I've I've taught it. it. I've read it. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But weird. I'm a 19th century. Yeah. I have to read it. So, of course, I've read it. And that was the thing where I argued with Candace Owens about it, which is like, oh, Uncle Tom's the hero of that book. And it's like, no, he's not. I know because I've read it. Uncle Tom is he's barely a character. If anything, he's more of a setting. (laughs) But anyway, my point, one of the things that that the points of that book is, do we want to allow the slave to read? Because if he reads, he might read the Bible and then he might realize that we're doing horrible things to him. That's like a point of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So I right. understand why you might want to ban it. <laughs> you know, like yeah. I understand if why you're a slave owner. Yeah, exactly. Like it, yeah. So like, you know, the, the, my, my point in bringing up Uncle Tom's Cabin and like the 19th century ban, and like, you know, when I... At the top of the show, when I mentioned Canterbury Tells and Maul Flanders, my, my point in bringing up this long history of book banning is it's not a modern thing. And it there there is a long history, to Kathy's point, of, you know, people using banning strategically um, to limit access to information, to try and limit people's political or social ideals. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, I know at the top of the show, we talked about like, you know, what are they saying versus like, what are they actually doing? But I think that honestly, like with these, you know, bills about curriculum and arguably like definitely some of the stuff that's like banned or 
uh, like is threatened to be banned by things like prisons like that's definitely politically motivated and it's very transparent kathy i think in your thread you do mention the comic book bans of the 1950s that started for listeners of our show they're going to know about the cca the comics code authority and ultimately eventually led to the creation of the CBLDF, Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. I mean, that was as politically motivated as I think you can ever argue. When when Gaines was brought before the Senate subcommittee hearings on, on juvenile delinquency about the content of crime suspense stories, one of the things he tried to argue was that, you know, these aren't necessarily books for children. These are books that are trying to bring about social change. These are books where we are trying to bring bring to light the need for social change in America through these crime comics, through these horror comics. And, and, and based, based on the letters we receive, the bulk of our readership are adults. Yes. And he was told by... Congress. I, I failed to see the social relevance of this cover of the murder of a insert Latino epithet here. Like that was said on the floor of like mm-hmm. that was, you know, and Gaines is like literally trying to explain. All right. I'm talking about racial justice and you on Congress just called a, you know, Latino people spicks. This mm-hmm. is something that you cannot do. And they just they literally didn't get what mm-hmm. he was trying to. You know, it was a book about murdering somebody for racist reasons. And they totally that was totally missed on them. And mm-hmm. then he lost and you know he was driven out of business. And the comic book industry d- agreed to censor itself for 50 years because they mm-hmm. were trying to avoid the government doing it. But it, it, the, the effect was the same. It limited content and growth of the medium for 30 years well entirely for 30 years but i I would argue to to this day and it's been gone for yeah yeah because it it set up expectations of what comics were i mean still this idea that comics are for kids you know like Mm -hmm. mouse mouse is for kids is is still a concept that's out there and that comes straight from 1954 senate subcommittee hearings (laughs) right and then the fact that we're still fighting that battle yeah, in 2022, we're fighting a battle over, you know, yes, Mouse is uncomfortable. Yes, Beloved is uncomfortable. Yes, I don't know. You know why the cage birds sing or color purple to kill a mockingbird. You know, as I said in the blog, it's really easy to become a banned book by just sort of, you know, winning a Pulitzer for talking about racism. <laughs> like that seems to put you on the list. But those things get banned. Because they're uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. yeah, are they really for kids? I mean, not exactly. But I also I, think that it's important to have those conversations with kids. And when people are like, well, but they're too young, they're going to say that no matter what. The woman who was fighting to ban Beloved was talking about for 17 year olds. Like, these are not kids. She was talking about for her son, who was a senior. He was like, well, he shouldn't be seeing this thing. This is inappropriate. It's like, what's wrong with you, lady? Well, and banning of material with sexual content when Euphoria is the most popular show uh, for high school kids is obviously ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So, so And people are arguing Euphoria to be banned, which I guess we should make clear that we're not necessarily just talking about conservative people, though, because of who we are on this show, mm-hmm. it seems like it. But euphoria, I see people who would very much style themselves as liberals arguing for the banning of euphoria. Or if you want to go back three years, 13 reasons why mm-hmm. I have I see liberal parents arguing for the banning of these shows, well, too. 
but the, like euphoria is it's popular because it's speaking to the generation who wants to talk about that issue the 19 the 1980s music you know record labeling thing the pmrc yeah. the people's yeah. music resource center was i mean that was spearheaded by the left i mean that was tipper mm-hmm. gore and, it was tipper and, gore and joe lieberman mm-hmm. yeah I, and once again i want to point out my mother wouldn't let me watch pocahontas for years the <laughs> disney movie because it was historically inaccurate so she had and she had good intentions i mean she had good intentions and i mean you know it, it, it's strange because I've also seen like this discourse on Twitter about like people are asking if you were like a kid before the internet, did your parents even like know what you were reading or think to ban it? And, and, you know, yeah. I grew up in a time where at different points in my life, my parents either banned certain Disney movies or Harry Potter for a hot second. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, like they, they, they had, good intentions and they didn't want to ban it forever they just wanted me to grow up a little but like mm-hmm. my, my whole point to them was like how like i read like hundreds of books every year you don't <laughs> read those books you only know about harry potter or pocahontas it's because it's <laughs> right, popular yeah. Right. And I read way, way, way worse stuff, which she really loved. I was surrounded by feral books. I I was just kind of allowed to read anything. <laughs> I was excited to, I want to to Kathy's point about Euphoria, though. It's one of the most popular shows on television. It's I mean, I've only watched two episodes, so I need to get into it. So, but like I've watched enough to know this is not a kid's show, but I understand why kids love it. And I absolutely would have loved it when I was 17. Also, Zendaya is hot. And like, I'm sure that's <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that's a big part of it. I mean, that's I mean. She's hot and she's one of the most famous people in the world right now. So I understand that's probably the hook, but like the show's good. Kathy, do your kids watch it? Yes, they do. In fact, they watch it, but I basically <laughs> cannot bring myself to watch it. It's too disturbing. <laughs> Maybe when you're older. Yeah, but not for my children. So one idea that's kind of occurring to me as the result of this conversation, because I've been looking sort of back at the history of the banning of comics in the 50s, I think that multiple different political groups end up getting on the bandwagon. They're using banning for their own purposes. And it goes back to mm-hmm. the the sensational power that censorship has. Censorship is actually a device to get noticed. And then fighting censorship mm. is also a device to get noticed. So it, it occurs to me that so often stated reasons really don't have anything to do with sort of the the real reasons or the ultimate outcome of these sort of political coalitions that come together against a particular book or a particular genre like comics in the 1950s. So just something y'all are making me think. Yeah, no, certainly the political, I mean, when something like this happens, I mean, the, the cliche is the best thing that can happen to an author is to get their book banned. And, you know, Mouse is on the bestseller list again. It's sold out from Amazon. It's going back to print. You know, the result of this is more people have read Mouse in the last three weeks than in the last <laughs> three years. Probably. Uh, yeah. Ten years, you know. So, so so thanks. And But, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. The you know, There's a certain you know, political agenda anytime you attempt to ban something, and particularly if you make a big deal out of it, rather than just like, you know, I'm not going to let my kids read this. I'm not going to let anybody's kids read this. And suddenly all the mm-hmm. kids in the world are like, oh, I want to read this. Nothing makes something more appealing than the forbidden. So my mom was always very permissive. I mean, I talk about stuff like the thing watching Roots when I was a kid. But my <laughs> mom had things that she didn't like. And she my, my mother didn't want me watching professional wrestling when I was a kid. 
So what did I do? I grew up and became a professional wrestler. That was like a thing that I actively <laughs> I, did just in a rebellion. And but like there was my mom had a problem with some rap groups, not others, which was <laughs> even I mean, for the minute that she tried to correct that, I, I, I think she quickly realized that in a world where headphones exist, this is a, a pointless pursuit, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, like, so I don't know. Well, I, you know, I watched Roots. I'm older than you. I was you know, early high school when Roots came out, like eighth or ninth grade or whatever. And I, you know, I love the series on TV. I read the book. That's probably one of the first hardcover novels I ever bought with my own money. And I read it and I remember talking to the school librarian and, you know, little white rural, you know, very small rural school. And the librarian who knew I was a book guy asked my opinion as to whether or not they should carry it in the library at my school. And like, yes, you should. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if anybody else ever read it. but uh, So one of the but, ways that I got to this idea that people are actually not banning books for any particular reason, except for maybe to advance their own cause, is people keep mm -hmm. comparing, say, a religious group burning Harry Potter to... The burning of right. books in Nazi Germany. So I was like, well, how did that go down? Because I realized I didn't know. And so I did some research into that. And I didn't realize that it was a movement or a, a strategy pursued by the Nazi youth group and specifically the sort of college division. And they picked. You're talking about the original one, the not the Harry Potter. You mean yeah, the, I'm the, sorry. the, the so Nazi version. book okay. burning. The story behind that is it, it happened in 1933. It happened in May and June of that year. And it happened in at least 34 cities in Germany. And it was a Nazi youth group idea that they pitched to the kind of top leaders of the Nazi party. And, and they were like, nah, mm -hmm. you know, go ahead and do it, but we're not going to get behind <laughs> really? it. Like, this is you, this is a you thing. And so okay. now I don't know how accurate that history is. I don't know if they sort of let it be led by youth as a way to give it more credibility. But it's fascinating to me that even book burning in the Nazi context was a publicity stunt. It was a particular campaign that happened in 1933. Yeah. And it was giant piles of books. And I think, you know, I think in some cases books were taken out of people's houses. I mean, I think it was massively terrifying and intimidating. And I think the suggestion was there. Mm -hmm. We're coming for your books now, but who knows what's next? I mean, I think this wasn't, you know, I mean, I think this was a terrifying, terrorist, intimidating yeah. campaign. I, it wasn't about the books. It was I about the terrorists. Right. And so... I'm just realizing that books themselves are such a powerful symbol that they make very good carriers for for mm -hmm. sort of targeting your opponent's ideology. And I have photos of comics being burnt in like 1947 as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and but once again, there were some that wasn't like this widespread nationwide thing. There were some very specific events with that. Yeah, the same thing um, happens with with the gathering up records and stuff that yeah. happened in the 80s. Uh, yeah, somebody blew up a stack of disco records in like 1981 or something at a football game. <laughs> and, and with the Harry Potter thing, like, you know, I, I was like in an evangelical church community when like attacking Harry Potter was big. And <laughs> cool I, kids are doing it. <laughs> and I heard, you know, I heard of like maybe one quote book burning ever. Like most of the time it was just people who had never read them 
popping off about how terrible they were and how like opposed to Christianity they were, which annoyed me because like they're very obviously like Chronicles of Narnia like savior yeah <laughs> you know whatever in that way which i once yelled at a guest speaker youth group to his face and interrupted him <laughs> because he was wrong because like you know like the it's not just like the oh no okay it's it's not just that you know like banning books is powerful but like constructing narratives about why books are dangerous is powerful too and i wanted to take the wind out of his sails in my like you know silly 17 year old like way also mm -hmm. i loved being right and I was, I was just, you know, an annoying know-it-all, but like he deserved it, so it's fine. What there, I like, like about your story, and I think the reason why this is such a fun topic to talk about and think about, is that we are all people who do think books are powerful and potentially dangerous, so we like it when other people think that too. Even if, even if we agree with them <laughs> yeah. about what they're doing or why they're doing it. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, it really was like a war over like what this narrative was about. And I, you know, like didn't really know what I was doing then. But isn't the argument of some branches of Christianity like, you know, this is the most powerful story ever told. Like we, we construct stories about the world. And we I think even if like books aren't as powerful as we think they are, like people think that like literature and knowledge hold power, certainly. I mean, there's so many books about the power of books. Yeah. Nice. So, so we've resolved nothing other than Hannah likes being right. <laughs> I, like, I like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Hannah's right too. <laughs> we all do. Yeah, <laughs> but but where she's not right is uh, oh, this was my favorite thing. No, because like last week, and I, I just want to, I I want to, I want the listeners to know how much I love Hannah. There is <laughs> on last week's show, Hannah. <laughs> Tossed in a dig about like how everyone on Vox Popcast, all of our favorite show is is the good place. And she just for no apparent reason, it's just totally there, ignoring Riverdale, the greatest show on television. And like I wonder, you know, like you, you had to think that he's gonna edit this out. He's gonna edit himself in fixing it. And just restraint. I thought about tossing in the it's you know, just the record scratch sound and me saying it's no Riverdale, but I left it. I, I let you. So you're welcome. That's your Christmas present or Valentine's Day present because it was a Valentine's Day show. So there you go. Um, yeah, well, you know, at least I'm self-reflective enough to know that I like being right. Thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Kathy. Very informative. I hope you come back next time we have something else to talk about that it's um, I mean, this was a pretty scholarly show for us. I think we did. Yeah. But I think it's an important issue. I, I think we... We never resolve anything, but I think we we touched on a lot of points that I hope people were wondering about. You know, we got the history, we got the effects. And if anything, I think the usefulness of something like this happening, not only do we have a bunch of people reading Mouse for the first time, which, you know, if you haven't read Mouse, get on that. It's a great book. But also, I I like that them attempting to do this, or I shouldn't even say attempting. It's awful that they did it. They did this. But them doing this at least got people to talk about the importance of books and problematic literature in a way that, you know, people are considering, wait a minute, it's not just mouse people. And people go, wait, they banned To Kill a Mockingbird? Yeah, a lot. But mm -hmm. that happens. I think it's good that people are talking about the Holocaust and not forgetting it. And I think it's good that people are talking about 
having serious conversations about what it means to ban books, not just on our show, but just in the public discourse in general. Mm-hmm. Kathy, anything you want to plug? If people want to find out more about you or read more of your stuff, well, anything I'm that you would like to plug? actually, because I want to plug the scholar that I learned so much from, and her name is Emily Knox. Awesome. And she's uh, associate professor in the School of Information Sciences at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, last name K-N-O-X. And if you check her out, she has been in a ton of interviews about this, including uh, a podcast about Mouse itself. So that's what I want people to check out. Absolutely. And we'll link oh, her yeah. in the show notes. I want to plug that Pin America paper about banned books in prisons because I read it all the way through. It's about 28 pages, which I know is a lot, but it's, you know, it's something, it's not something I considered really before a few years ago. And I think that you'll learn a lot and find out ways that you might potentially be able to help. Also linked in the show notes. I assume that you already noted. Yes. Okay. I already. Know. I wonder also linked in the show notes. I wonder if people check our show notes. Yeah, they should. You know, we always have, we, tr- we try to have full bibliographies of where you can get further information on most of the stuff we talk about on the show. But anyway, since everybody's plugging other things, I'm going to plug read mouse, read Persepolis, read some old EC comics, read this one summer, read, uh, boy, any one of a whole bunch of other specifically graphic novels and comics that have been banned or attempted to be banned. Yeah. I, I am Rosa Parks, which was a wonderful oh. children's book that, that, you know, someone tried to take out of a school here in, in Pennsylvania or did. I wonder, you know, we haven't done, we have not done a syllabus show in a long time. <laughs> I wonder, and this is a question for our audience, you know, leave a comment and let us know, should we do a syllabus show on banned books? That would be an interesting way yeah. to do this. We haven't, yeah. because that, we haven't done one in quite a while. So like that might be something we could do. And if we do, we'll, we'll invite Kathy back because she's taught the class, yeah. you know, a bunch. So, yep. but also just in general, I mean, banned comics, banned novels, there's a lot of you know, books that people probably should be reading. So let us know if you'd yep. like to, yeah. if you'd like to hear us talk more about that. Anyway. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all of the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show, all those same places, at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where you can leave us comments on this or any other show, and you can find out what we're talking about next week. I'm not even sure. Maybe it's a show we've recorded already. Maybe it's not. I've lost track. But we got a lot of really interesting stuff coming up. So we would always love your feedback so we can talk about your ideas on the show as we did on this episode. Or just let us know what your thoughts are after the fact. Leave us comments on this or any other show. If you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from and do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review. If you leave us a five-star review, especially on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, that gooses the algorithm, makes us more popular, helps other people find the show. And, you know, we don't want to be banned. Be transgressive. (laughs) Make people make, you know, take our show and like recommend it to your favorite like high schooler. Hey, you can, you know, <laughs> listen to this cool, the, the, these cool people who swear and talk about literary theory. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that's what all the cool kids are doing. I'd like to thank Maximilian of Thought Form Music for our epic theme song, feeling ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to thank Kathy for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.